Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we've got an exciting interview with Amanda Fielding, who's an English artist and a drug policy reformer. In 1998, Amanda founded the Beckley Foundation, a charitable trust that promotes a rational, evidence-based approach to global drug policy initiates, designs, and she conducts pioneering neuroscientific and clinical research into the effects of psychoactive substances on the brain and on cognition. She investigates uh, new avenues for mental and physical conditions, as well as the enhancement of creativity and well-being. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you. My understanding is that you originally set up the Beckley Imperial Research Program. When was that? Way back in 1998? No, that, that was a long way after that. I set up the Beckley Foundation in order to do scientific research and discover how, um, what changes underlie changes in consciousness in 1998. And then in 2005, I set up a collaboration with Professor David Nutt, and that um, um, became the Beckley Imperial Research Program in 2009, actually. So things move very slowly. Things move. <laughs> well, given that Albert Hoffman discovered LSD in 1938, I believe that was the first time. But then um, no one recognised that it had any difference. And do you know that story is rather amazing. The sto- he, it uh, was discarded because it was tested on animals. Yes. And then he re synthesized it, which he'd never done to, for another compound, and accidentally somehow ingested some in 1943. And that's when uh, the first kind of LSD experience was. Um, that's what is referred to as the bicycle trip, isn't it? I, I think actually that was the following day when he took uh, what he thought was the smallest dose you can take, 250 micrograms, which in fact is, uh, well, turned out to be a very big trip and um, gave him quite an uncomfortable ride. So that was 43. Yes. Then fast forward to 1966, it was made illegal in the United States. LSD was made illegal. Right. Now, were you already doing research prior to 1966, or did your work start after that? Um. In England, it came illegal a bit later. Um, but my, uh, my first experience was with LSD. I'd been studying mysticisms and comparative religions had been my passion. And um, then I first took LSD in 1965. And in 1966, I met a Dutch scientist who had a new hypothesis of the mechanisms underlying changes in consciousness. Um, 
And then I became fascinated with the scientific explanation of consciousness and how we could better understand it. And um, it became my aim to do scientific research. So, t if you recall, tell us a little bit about your experience in 1965. And the reason I'm asking for that is I want to put in context what we're going to be leading up to. So our listeners will hear some of the history, but what we're going to be leading up to is your recent groundbreaking research showing digital images of the inside of a brain on LSD and the placebo group that was not on LSD. So right. listeners, that's, what's, that's what we're going to be leading up to. But right now, we're going to hear about this researcher, Amanda Fielding's first experience with this material, LSD, back in 1965 when it was very legal, underlining very legal in 1965 in England. Tell us about that experience, please. Well, um, it, it was obviously an amazing experience of people who've taken psychoactive substances know it changes your visual experience and the way you hear music and um, a sense of uh, wonder and unity but I, I at that point didn't think it was a it was a way of life it was more a wonderful trip to a, um, a fun fair if you like and then the following year I met this scientist called Bart Hugas who had um, a hypothesis about how it changes the cerebral circulation, increasing the volume of blood in the brain capillaries, and how, with this knowledge, you could um, kind of control your experience on LSD and use it as a tool with which to increase your cognitive functioning and um, other um, other. So qualities. he so he was already hypothesizing back in the 60s yes. about blood flow and oxygen flow exactly. being, being regulated by this medicine, uh, exactly. lysergic acid diethylamide. Yes, and he, his other major hypothesis, which I found of even greater interest actually, was the hypothesis of describing the ego, the um, the kind of Freudian idea of ego, but as a mechanism of um, constriction, which is superimposed upon the rest of the brain and is, um, is developed by conditioning and interrelated with the meaning of the word and becomes the control of the gates of consciousness. It decides what gets through consciousness and what is repressed, what gets to consciousness and what is repressed before it gets consciousness. And amazingly, um, that is what our recent brain imaging um, studies with psilocybin and LSD have shown um, in modern uh, neuroscientific terms. It's called the default mode network. It's a controlling network in the brain, a top-down controlling network, which has its blood supply reduced um, by a psychedelic, so that the brain becomes more anarchical and um, the whole brain begins to communicate. So um, when this gentleman that you met way back then yes. was talking about controlling, was he talking about our being able to voluntarily 
take control of the blood flow to different areas of the brain in order to get through this with this gatekeeper that we're referring to as the ego? Um, he was describing how, um, or hypothesizing, how um, an underlying action of a psychedelic substance is to increase the volume of blood in the brain capillaries by constricting the veins so that they blow up and squeeze out cerebral spinal fluid, which is the other volume in the cranial cavity. And so you change the ratio between blood and cerebral spinal fluid, and that enables billion more brain cells to um, function simultaneously, and hence the kind of expanded, altered state of consciousness. That, that was the kind of basic hypothesis, and that the ego mechanism is a mechanism which controls um, the repression in the brain, i.e. what gets to consciousness and what doesn't. And that when there's less blood to go around, like in the normal um, daily state, there is more repression than when um, uh, the blood supply is increased through a psychedelic substance and then the repression drops off. And um, remarkably, that is what we're discovering um, in our recent um, brain imaging studies. Remarkably, what you're finding now, some 50-plus years later, is what this gentleman was hypothesizing to you, a young woman in your 20s, yeah. back in the 1960s. Yes. So you listen to this scientist. Yes. You've had an experience one time in 1965 with this material. Well, I had many more than one experience. After the first one. Yeah. Okay. So... You've had more than one experience. You're listening to this scientist. He's giving you some some uh, hypotheses about how this medicine that you've now taken more than once works. And how does that affect you? And how does that affect the course of your life after that? You're in your 20s, and, and you've taken this this medicine. You hear this scientist talking about the mechanism. What yeah. happens next? Well, it actually very much um, changed the course of my life because... Um, I, I'd been had a passionate interest, as I said, in, in the mystics and the, the mysticism which underlies every spiritual religious practice. And um, I studied under the kind of leading professor of the time, someone called Professor Zayner at All Souls in Oxford. And uh, I was very fascinated to know what was that unifying core which all religions held at their centre. And then when I experienced um, LSD, I realized, wow, this is it. Aha, this is the experience that the mystics write about. And so for me, the description of uh, the changing in blood supply and how one could control the change in blood supply by maintaining a normal glucose level in the blood, which is another aspect of the hypothesis, um, was very revealing. And the whole idea of the ego as this conditioned reflex mechanism which creates a veil between our um, perception of reality um, through the veil of words um, made a lot of sense. And so I thought this is so fascinating. I, I'll dedicate my life to researching more about it 
because I think it could be, I mean, I, I consider um, the study of consciousness in, in, the, in the sense the holy grail of um, scientific understanding, because what's more important than understanding more about our own consciousness? And to be able to um, modulate the levels at which one is consciousness surely is a very um, valuable new asset to gain. Which is not new, because obviously people have done it since um, the beginning of human civilization. The searchment for consciousness and to understand consciousness indeed has been going on since the beginning. Yes. So, again, here you are, you're a young woman in your 20s, it's the 1960s, you're in England, and you see this as a life changer. Yes. What do you do? Well, I spent the next 50 years um, devoted to this topic, you could say. And for the first um, um, 48 of them, the topic's been totally taboo. And now it's coming out of the taboo, I, I, I hope partly due to my labors. And I think at last, hopefully, society is beginning to recognize that these compounds are extremely valuable as tools to um, alter consciousness and be able to study consciousness and also tools which open up new avenues of treatment for many of our um, most debilitating illnesses, such as depression and um, addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder, all all of those conditions which are kind of based on rigid um, thought patterns and behavioral patterns. And again, that is what our studies are showing is that under a psychedelic, these rigid patterns are shaken. They lose their grip. And um, by losing their grip, um, actually there's an afterglow after um, the, the immediate effect of the psychedelic wears off. And we've just recently done a study, the first study to use psilocybin in the treatment of chronic depression, and this was just a small pilot study, but it had a, a 67, 67% success rate, i.e. people who had been depressed for 18 years on average, um, had a rem- remission one week after um, of, I think it's 67%, and then after three months later, it was something like 42%, or, but a remarkably high success rate. You, and d- you did you did uh, pre and post testing on these people who were suffering from depression, and yes. then what you administered the um, psilocybin in this case. In this case, we're talking about psilocybin, another mind-altering substance. Please uh, tell our listeners uh, something more about psilocybin and, oh, ed- and educate us, please. Ah, psilocybin is the active principle in the. Um, what's called the magic mushroom, i.e. the the mushrooms which were used throughout history by shamans and medicine men around the world to alter consciousness, um, bring about revelations or spiritual experiences or healing people. Um, So it wasn't, wasn't until recently, 
actually, that people knew that there were these, people in the West, at least, that traditional people knew about all about the, the psychedelic properties of magic mushrooms. But again, Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD, also synthesized the first psilocybin. Um, so he was an amazing creative scientist of the highest order, Albert Hoffman. And I think I was lucky enough that Bart Hugis, the Dutchman, was a creative um, genius in kind of visualizing the possible changes in the mechanisms underlying the changes in the brain, which is just beginning. I mean, he wasn't totally right all the way through, but remarkably, um, it's remarkable how much of what he um, projected is turning to be the reality. So Albert Hoffman, who synthesized LSD, also synthesized psilocybin. Yes. So now you could, we actually have a product which can be made rather than necessarily hunting for the mushrooms. Yes. Did, did, did the psilocybin become illegal in England as well? Um, that became illegal quite recently. Um, it was a crazy thing, and then suddenly, so actually, I mean, you know, little old ladies who pick up mushrooms in the countries are actually doing illegal things. But um, I, it, it was relatively recent that the mushroom became illegal, and luckily, no one really knows the, the word psilocybin. So it was easier, it's been easier to do scientific research with psilocybin than LSD, which are probably three most toxic letters in the world, I mean, um, mistakenly, because actually LSD is an incredible compound which can bring enormous healing powers to our struggling um, species. So I'm hoping that through the very best research, we will slowly demonstrate how we can use these compounds to the benefit of the individual and indeed to society. The psilocybin has been illegal here in this country, you know, for decades. Uh, and only recently has some research been allowed. I'm sure you're familiar with the research that Roland Griffiths did Absolutely. at, jo I work with him. With, at yes. Johns Hopkins University. Yes. You worked with One, him. Yes, on, I, I worked with him on the, um, the psilocybin and psychotherapy overcoming nicotine addiction, which had an amazing high 80% success rate, amazing study. Please tell us a little bit about that study. Describe it for us. Well, um, we started it years ago on almost no funding, um, and um, basically they have a wonderful team at Johns Hopkins, a very, very high, um, good team in um, um, for therapeutic um, work, and they give a high dose, two high doses of um, psilocybin, having prepared the, uh, the participants very carefully for the occasion. And then basically the participants lie in a comfortable reclining position with um, headphones on and eye masks and um, get into their inner space. And um, interestingly, the ones who experienced the most kind of mystical experience 
are the ones who have the most successful outcomes. And anyway, um, it was a very high rate of success. It was um, 80% success rate. And so now um, uh, there's an um, enlarged study we're carrying out um, with um, a brain imaging component included in the study. Now, the study that, uh, that Roland did, evidently you worked on it as well, uh, with depression, uh, as I recall, they uh, did administered the psilocybin one time, and a, a year later there were still positive results on depression. Um, um, wait a moment. I don't think he's done one on a psilocybin and depression. I think our one at, um, at the Beckley Imperial Programme, was the first to investigate psilocybin's effect on depression, unless I'm being mistaken. So... But they're doing it now. They're doing a very interesting study with psilocybin and alcohol addiction. And in your study, just to, to reiterate for a moment, in your study with, with uh, depression and psilocybin, yes. you're saying that... 60, these people were depressed for 18 years. On average. On the average. Yeah. And 67% of them were depression-free one week after treatment. But yeah. 42% of them, this is an even a much more important number here, 42% of them were in remission three months later. Yes. You see, yes. Th this is quite remarkable. Yeah, uh, because remarkable. It, it, I think it's one of the highest um, rates of... Um, um, success been recorded. I mean, recently some some research with ketamine was done, but it didn't have such a high rate of success. That yes, we'll get on to to uh, ayahuasca and and back to LSD yes. in a few moments. But I want to stay here with the psilocybin because see, yeah. in, in this country for depression, people are given various kinds of medicines, often yes. often including. Uh, the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors because of the effect of serotonin or the hypothesized effect of serotonin on depression. And what people have to do here is they have to take the, these medicines 365 days a year. It's basically yeah. an annuity for the pharmaceutical companies. You know, the people yeah. are buying these medicines 365 doses a year. And yeah. here your study is indicating that the people took the psilocybin medicine twice, yes. uh, seven days apart, yes. and then had a 42% uh, remission in three months, which, which would indicate that, I mean, 42% of them, yes. which would indicate that it would be possible to take the, the medicine maybe four times a year Absolutely. rather than 365 times a year. Absolutely. And this is just with an initial study. Exactly that. And, and um, I mean, also, um, there's a lot of other, uh, there's a lot of other measures which improve general optimism and um, mindfulness. And, um, it, it, and the, the people who are resistant um, to, I think there's 20% of people who don't respond to any treatment which can include things like electric shock treatment, which is rather frightening. Frightening. Um, so our, the people in our study were of that 20%, people who hadn't responded to any previous study. 
So of that 20%, 42% were still in remission after three months. And as you say, you know, with four treatments a year, or um, th- this is what, in a way, is so criminal. If only this um, approach to healing had been um, researched over the last 50 years, these people wouldn't need to be suffering because th- there would be this treatment available. And let's hope now our research will go on to make available psychedelic-assisted therapy. Because I think it's an amazing, new, powerful way of getting to the root of the trauma and um, bringing about a kind of deep healing experience. Amanda, I want to ask you a very personal question. I, I know that you are connected to the highest levels of English government, uh, it's well known that you're, uh, you're, you're part of the nobility, that, uh, that you're a countess yourself. And my question is, why do you think the English government has made this uh, medicine, this psilocybin, illegal? And why do you think the English government has, yeah. ma- has made r- basic scientific research at yeah. the very highest levels so difficult to do. Yes. What is your well, thinking? It, it, Why it, is that going on, uh, please? To, to please America, to put it in the shortest possible way. Um, and it's a disgrace, because actually, um, David Cameron, who, as you know, probably resigned yesterday, um, he, before he became prime minister, was in favor of reform, quite clearly, and spoke very well on it, and said more or less the same things as I was saying. Um, well, when he became um, prime minister, that was forgotten. And sadly, his, um, his Home Secretary, Theresa May, um, only a month ago, um, brought about a new act which um, prohibited and criminalized all psychoactive substances, um, even those to be made in the future. And sadly, she's just become our new Prime Minister. So um, I would like to think that she will um, mend her ways and have a more um, thoughtful attitude. But uh, well, maybe she will. Let's hope she does. But where do you th- if, if, do you think she's coming from? A place of concern about the United States government attitude. If she thinks differently, or do you think it's personal with her? Does she have some other kind of? What is your thinking about? Hey, think where is she coming picture. from? Where is she coming from? I think um, she comes from probably um, a rather. Um, conventional, fearful, um, Middle England background on these issues. So she's probably uh, genuinely fearful of psychoactive substances. But um, she should know from studying the literature and what's happening in other countries that actually if you want to protect the health of your children and the children of the country, it's much better to decriminalize these substances, take them out of the hands of criminals, and bring them into the hands of educated, um, government-sponsored systems where they're regulated and one uh, does one's very best to minimize harms and protect children from use of them before suitable age and educate and provide treatment for those who... Um, get in the habit of misusing them. Um, it's a well-known fact. I mean, I got involved in this right back in 98, and there was no evidence base about um, 
about um, illegal drugs and said about trying to create an evidence base. And now, 18 years later, there is a very um, firm evidence base which shows that strong prohibition does actually means greater harms from the drugs. So countries like uh, Portugal, which have decriminalized all drugs, have a much lower rate of use and, more importantly, of harmful use. So um, it's going against the scientific evidence base to be prohibitionist, and it's really time, um, you know, the country has changed. Yes. And America's changing inside, but the cruel thing is the American... Um, Obviously, the UN is completely American-controlled, uh, and the UN controls all the countries in the world. So all the countries are having to keep um, psychoactive substances criminalized, where the states of America um, can break their own, um, um, you know, conventions. What what is the what is the prevalent thinking? What is the thinking within? the English government about why the United States government is attempting and has been continuing to suppress scientific research in this particular area. How did the English see us about this? Well, actually, in the writing of the UN, scientific research and medical research is permitted. But the actual fact is that it's made impossible because, one, it's made so restrictive and so expensive that no one can undertake it. Two, there's no funding, which um, no one wants to fund the research because they think it might be bad for their reputation. Three, no scientist wants to get near it because, again, it could damage their careers. So for 50 years, there's been virtually no research on this incredibly valuable area of potential um, treatment. Um, now, luckily, because of one or two small little organizations like my own, the Beckley Foundation and Hefter and Johns Hopkins, um, luckily, thanks to our endeavors, it's slowly becoming um, apparent that these substances um, can actually bring about remarkably, uh, just, I mean, outstanding results. And I think slowly that's beginning to permeate consciousness. And I've always thought that it's only through the very best scientific research do we have a hope of reintegrating these compounds into the fabric of society. Totally agree with you that it's only the best scientific research that is going to uh, educate us and show us what is possible. But the question we come back to over and over again is a question that you've dedicated your life uh, to promoting, which is getting not just getting the research done, which is what you've dedicated your life to, but opening the doors to allowing the research. And that's why I'm, I'm coming back to the question, how do, how, does the, how do the English leaders see the united states i mean if if what you're saying is what what we uh, is what we get plenty of evidence um uh, from here and what you're validating which is 
that the United States government is sanctioning countries around the world who try to do the research. I mean, I know that personally, Amanda, because I went to Israel some years ago with Rick Doblin and a group from MAPS and Michael, yes. Dr. Michael Mithoffer, who did right. the MDMA study in the Carolinas. Uh, and w when we were in Israel, I was told by the head of the uh, Supreme Court uh, in Israel, as well as their leading psychiatrist, both of these people told me, we would love to do this MDMA research with our post-traumatic stress disorder uh, yes. uh, people, but we can't because the United States government will sanction us if we yes. do the research. Absolutely. Okay? And so you're, you're validating that. That yeah. in England, it's the same feeling. You're, t you're educating yeah. us that it goes beyond that, yeah. which is that the, the United States government has used their power in the United Nations to suppress this research worldwide. Yes. And uh, again, I'm coming, and, and you're saying absolutely that's the case. You know, that's what, that's what we're being taught. That's what we're being told. And we can even trace some of it back to uh, an American uh, racist here in this country in 1935, Harry yeah. Anslinger. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the, the, yeah. the question in 2016, again, is what do the English think the Americans are up to in suppressing research around the world? Do they think, um, they think we're just crazy? Do they think there's a reason I, I, behind I it? What do they think? Are we just a country gone nuts that we suppress science? What do, they th what do you guys, what do you all think about us? I mean, what I think about it is one thing. The, the government doesn't think about it. They don't um, even think about it. They don't it. think about it. It's not a topic which interests them. It, it doesn't get votes in Middle England. I and see. And actually, the interesting thing is, the Americans, the U.S. government, have actually patented patented most of um, the cannabinoids and things while criminalizing them. They were also, way back in the 70s, patenting them. Yes. But um, it's, it's, it's a very dirty business, actually. The whole um, war on drugs has caused untold suffering under the pretense that it's to protect um, young people against drugs and countries. Actually, it had a whole whole load of different reasons of getting into other countries that they wanted to get into, of controlling, of, um, you know, it, it, it's done more damage almost, I think, than any other um, kind of legal setup. Political influence. Of course, yeah. in this country, you know, we've got our jails nationally full of young black yeah. men Absolutely. who have been put away for relatively minor uh, marijuana offenses. Absolutely. I think you're seven times more likely to go to prison if you're black than if you're white, and no more blacks use, use these substances less than whites. Yeah, well, we, we learned... It's appalling. It's the same in England. Yeah, it's we, used as a means of discrimination. Yeah, we learned that in Chasing the Scream. I know you know yeah. him. Yeah, absolutely. And... So we have this situation. Our jails are full here. We yeah. have more people in jail, I think, than any, other, any co other country in the world. So everybody yeah. knows that about yeah. us. Yes. Which is definitely... It's the biggest growing industry in California, isn't it, or the second or something? Uh, 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 the industry of, of institutionalization of, yeah. of people yeah. who have been convicted. Yes. So, so it's a horror story. Yes. But within that horror story, we're going to come back 
to your breakthrough research that you were able to do after a lifelong of pushing. Right. And you come up with now with the, and we want to hear, so you've told us some about the psilocybin study with yeah. depression. So yeah. we know now about the, about the tremendous results. 67% of the patients would, were, were free of depression a week after, 42% after three months. Please tell us something about something that's exotic to a lot of listeners, your research with ayahuasca. Yes, well, that's very recent. And that was with a, a collaboration I have with a researcher in Barcelona called Jordi um, Reba. And he's probably the leading researcher in ayahuasca in the world. And uh, this research was, we've done um, a series of researches on uh, studies into ayahuasca. And this particular one was looking at um, whether um, compounds in ayahuasca produces the birth of new brain cells. The actual birth of new brain cells? Yes. Okay. Yes. And um, it, it, it's, it was done in a, in, a, in a Petri dish with the um, cells from the cerebellum of mice. And... It's quite amazing how um, you see a, a flood of new, neuro, uh, new neurons. Um, I'm looking at a slide. I'm looking at one of yes. your slides as you speak. And right. I'm, I'm actually looking at a slide of young neurons. They're stained green. Yeah. And then mature neurons, they're stained red. Right. It's, it's a beautiful piece of work here, by the way. Thank you yes. so much for it. Yes. Isn't it exciting? So, I mean, it's literally a very first phase. Yes. But as we all know, that um, many illnesses like um, dementias and Alzheimer's and the effects of stroke, um, you know, are very dependent on the death of brain cells. So if one can... We know now that actually new neurons are made um, in the adult brain, which one thought didn't happen 10 years ago. But this is a kind of flood of new neurons. So if it, in time, can be used, it could be, uh, you know, um, a great step forward. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't find that other psychoactive substances also stimulate the birth of new neurons. And that, that, that's something I very much want to investigate next, to see if LSD might have the same effect. Now, we've talked about your work in psilocybin. We've done a little brief work on your work with ayahuasca. I want to now come to the study, which of course is the one that was recently written up in the New York Times with photographs uh, of your imaging. And please tell us about your digital imaging research with LSD. Yes, yes. Well, that's very exciting because my my old passion from the 60s was investigating the changes in cerebral circulation underlying the changes in neural functioning. And um, what this study is showing is um, the degree we were looking particularly in, in, in uh, the part with the rather wonderful images at the, at the visual parts of the brain. And... Um, one sees how how the visual parts of the brain act in normal, i.e. on a placebo, in normal circumstances. And then when 
um, the infusion of LSD takes place, one sees suddenly the the whole brain is much more connected. Um, different parts of the brain are speaking to each other simultaneously. So there's a kind of burst of connectivity, which um, kind of goes a long way to explain why on LSD uh, one has the feeling that one's seeing is much, much deeper. You see beauty at a much kind of deeper, more trans- transformational level. And the same with music. Everyone has always said how amazingly deep and vibrant and wonderful music and visual stimulations are. And that's because um, the um, parts of the brain which are dealing with um, emotion and memory are all talking with the visual areas. So it's informing the visual areas. And um, indeed, we can see the the roots of the hallucination is that there's as much um, stimulation of the visual area as with eyes open or with eyes are closed. I'm looking at a slide here yes. uh, on your research, yes. and it, it, it's, it's so dramatic because the, the people, the subjects who had taken the LSD, and I'm looking at the slide of their brains, It's bright. The whole brain is bright and lit up. Absolutely. And I'm looking at the brain, the slides of the brain. Uh, Remember, folks, this was done by uh, magnetic uh, digital imaging. Yeah. So we actually are looking at at the inside of the brain, and the slides are photo. uh, I'm looking at photographs of these slides. The the placebo folks, they have little patches of, of, of lit up areas, but most of the brain is dark. Absolutely. It, 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 it's almost as if this is validating, you know, the stuff that we've been hearing all our lives, you know, just on the street, which is, well, you know, you only use 5% of your brain or you only use 10% absolutely. of your... So it turns out, according to your research, that's accurate. Yes, yes absolutely. And, and that's what's so incredibly exciting. And that's really why I set up the Becker Foundation is because with brain imaging, you can actually see what's happening in the brain at the same time as... Um, the person is experiencing and can tell you what they're experiencing. So you can correlate the experience with um, the internal activity. And really, the combination of brain imaging and psychedelic substances, which alter consciousness in such a reliable way, is an incredible microscope. I mean, it's as important as the telescope is to astronomy. Yes, as and uh, whatever the microscope is to the internal studies, so too is um, the psychedelics together with brain imaging so to the brain. Again, it's bringing us back to what your friend theorized yes. some 50 years ago yes. that the LSD is evidently tell us it's it's opening up the vessels so that the brain areas that are ordinarily not used are being infused. With more oxygen, is that... And glucose. I and mean, oxygen and glucose. Is, consciousness is the result of the oxidization of glucose, the energy um, which produces um, the neuronal changes. And at the moment, just last week, um, I've embarked on a new study, which is very exciting, which is to um, examine which comes first. Um, you know, how, how LSD... 
been a well-known fact for quite a few years now that LSD and indeed all psychedelics work through the serotonin 2A receptor, which is a particular receptor. But nobody knows what happens beyond that. And with this new form of op- optogenetic um, um, investigation, one can see actually right into the pyramidal cells which lie in the layer five of the cortex and see how they react to LSD and change um, the blood supply or do they stimulate the neurons. And so we can work out which comes first, which is the egg and which is the chicken. So we have a combination of possibilities here. It is so exciting uh, uh, talking to you. The possibility of us actually taking a medicine which will create new neurons actually yes. brain brain development bra- brain in- increasing with more neurons more bringing more activity into play yes. and at the same time another medicine which stimulates allows us to actually access other areas of our brain that Absolutely. we haven't been accessing on a day-to-day basis as we go no. through life because as you've explained to us we grow what you call filters as yes. we're living. And the, we, as yes. you've explained it to us, the filters constrict us. Yes. And, and that is the, um, that's the kind of um, incredible process which happens in humans particularly um, from infancy onwards when we slowly learn the art of control and repression. And obviously it's, an, it's a vital element to enable us to do all the incredible things we do, but at the same time it can become um, a very dangerous implement because it can stop us from having a real grasp of reality because we're looking through a veil of words and um, implanted meaning. So our greatest asset becomes our greatest liability, as so often the case. And as we get older, this uh, this kind of um, um, set way of behavior, the one-track thinking, the myopic vision becomes more and more set. And in fact, when it gets really set, that's what underlies conditions like depression and addiction and uh, uh, um, obsessional compulsive disorders, yes. all of those things which are hyper-fixed patterns of thought and behavior. And that's what a psychedelic experience seems to shake and um, shake up in a way that actually it leaves an afterglow of effect. And actually, this is all kind of new with uh, ours and uh, the recent um, research which is carrying on. So it, it, it's, it's very exciting to see, um, see kind of... What it allows us is to see empirically how these compounds work in the brain. Yes. And what is their value? I mean, obviously, people who've taken these compounds over the last 50 years, I've met many, many people who've said, my goodness, I would have never done this um, thing, whether it was starting a school in India for untouchable children or discovering DNA like um, uh, Carrie Mullis, all the things people have done. Many of them have said... I would have never done this without my, the insights I got through my LSD or psychedelic experience. And it wasn't kind of 
obvious why, what is the mechanisms underlying. So that's what we're beginning to unravel now. I mean, I think our foot is only just in the door, but it's a lovely place to be in the door. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's much better than being outside the door, which we have been. Definitely. Now, twice during during our interview, you've mentioned this... uh, Afterglow. You used the word yes. an afterglow after taking the medicine. Yes. Please elaborate a little bit for us on this afterglow that you're talking about. Well, that's rather like what is shown in the depression study, that three months later, um, the people are still experiencing a remission, or 42% of them, a remission in chronic depression. And they are still reporting feeling much more optimistic and um, more sense of openness. And in um, the, uh, the research I've done with Geordie Reba uh, on ayahuasca, um, people report um, the same thing, much more openness. And strangely, um, their measures of mindful, what people gain through mindful meditation, um, people who are regular um, Ayahuasca users have a high rate of mindfulness in the test. And it seems that that is, um, there's a very fascinating um, observation we made in our first psilocybin study, which was this um, network in the brain, which is called the default mode network, which has only kind of recently in the last 10 years been kind of identified. In a way, it's like the conductor in an orchestra. It's um, part of the ego mechanism, as described, say, by Freud, which which kind of controls what enters consciousness and what doesn't. It's a, it's a circuit of high-level hub centers which um, control sensory perceptions coming in and whether they continue to consciousness or whether they're repressed and... Um, kept beneath the threshold of consciousness. So it's like the controller of the veils, basically. Uh. And on a psychedelic, in this case it was on psilocybin, we noticed that there was a reduction in blood flow to this controlling network. Uh Uh And what we noticed was that the um, integrity within the network... um, Disappeared, And that means that usually within a network, there's a lot of communication between the different key hubs in the network. And in the default mode network, there are two very important hubs. One is the medial prefrontal cortex, and the other is the posterior cingulate cortex. And in depressed patients, it had been observed that there was chronic overactivity in these between these two centers. So it was as if um, there was a repetitive conversation saying, whatever, I'm so depressed, I'm so depressed, or I want to drink, I want to drink, which would repeat itself. And when the psychedelic um, removed the blood supply to this center, so the activity dropped, um, there the controlling grip of the um, default mode network diminished and suddenly all the um, different networks in the brain began to communicate to each other 
So these networks, which were normally anti-correlated, i.e. didn't talk to each other, right. suddenly began talking. So you that's got, what we can see in the LSD study. Yes. With all these different parts of the brain all lit up and communicating with each other. So you're starting the beginning, the pioneering work on understanding the mechanism that's going on in the brain in relation to the medicines, yes, which is exactly. fascinating. I wanna, and and I, that's, the, well, that's the action beneath the mystical experience, when um, the person experiences themselves as being part of the whole, part of the universe, part of whatever, yes. however they want to verbalize it. We've got a little time left. I want to ask a couple of yes. quick questions, Amanda. Yes. One is, you know, I've had a specialty of, of, of addiction treatment uh, going back for many decades, and yes. I've treated people for heroin and cocaine, and I've treated thousands of people. Right. I don't get people coming in addicted to, to LSD no. or to, so why not, no. or to psilocybin I, I, or ayahuasca. Why don't I get yeah. people, people addicted to, to LSD or to, M, or to MDMA? They simply aren't addictive. You cannot, you cannot make an animal addicted to them. Um, they're, they're non-addictive. They're non-toxic. So they're, they're just non-toxic. They're yeah. non-addictive. Okay. Yeah. Next question. When we cut ourselves... And, and, and the healing takes place, yeah. uh, like on the back of my arm, if I cut myself, a healing would take place, and, yeah. and it's involuntary. It yeah. just happens. Yeah. Do you think that with these medicines, can you see a day where we will be able to take voluntary control of our healing, where we'll be able yeah. to focus the mind in such a way so that rather than all healing being, quote, involuntary, we'll actually be able to go inside, find damaged tissue on an organ, and actually use the mind to aid in the repair voluntarily? Can you see that coming? I can, but I think that's like high-level yogics have. I think it's a very high-level skill. Um, but I think do you think I these think medicines, do you think the medicines that you're researching yes. can assist in us learning how to take voluntary control of our mind towards healing and repair? I do, but, and I also think they can assist in taking the blood supply to the repressed areas. And I think the, the core of a trauma is a repressed area. The pain is kind of locked into this do-not-enter area. And... By um, removing um, the depression towards this area, which is brought about by the default mode network, protecting the person against the pain, by washing it out, if you can wash out the pain, then it can heal itself. And so I think these substances are amazing um, tools of healing, but also of um, kind of self realization and transformation and tools for creativity because they allow um, different parts of the work brain to work simultaneously and new combinations of ideas to come together. So in, in many ways, they're a win-win um, gift. They're a gift of the gods. And poor, silly, modern man has criminalized them. And it's time that we kind of got out of this dark age and reintegrate them with the knowledge of science and, um, um, you know, medicine and, and spirituality, indeed. Um, so I think we're finally 
um, the tide has turned and we're slowly um, climbing that particular mountain, hopefully. Well, thank you, Amanda Fielding. Thank you for your life work in, oh, in, in, in bringing us out of this darkness of lack of research. Thank you for putting so much of your time, energy, and life work into, into bringing research out to the public so that these medicines will eventually become available. Yes. And thank you so much for appearing on our program Not today. Too. It's well, been a pleasure very, very having you. And let's hope the governments can change and allow us to um, set up um, clinics where people can get this therapy. Here, here. And, and thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is work. It's, it's work. It's worth working for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Just let your